filmmaker Matt Patterson is on the show today. He has a incredible little independent horror film out there for you all to see right now. I had scrolled past it a little while back. It's streaming on Tubi, and I believe it's showing up in a few other places as the weeks go on. The film's called Apartment 413. It's about a man who's unemployed, looking for a job, and has a pregnant girlfriend at home. And during this job search, he starts to maybe get inside his own head. Or maybe the things that start happening to him are actually happening. The main character begins to go down a downward spiral that's similar to things that happen in The Shining, I guess you could say. That's my closest comparison or the first thing kind of coming to my head right now. It's a compelling psychological thriller with horror elements to it with a lot of high stakes, and they all happen to take place in this little one-bedroom apartment. Apartment 413 was official selection for Cinequest and the Austin Film Festival. Matt's ties to the great city of Austin, Texas are pretty strong. He lives there right now. He's an Austin filmmaker. We talk about it a lot in the show. I love that city. Apartment 413 also struck me on a deeper level as I feel like I've been there before. I've been that guy trying to find a job or find something better and the absolute craziness that goes on with it. On surface level, the film is a simple film with a simple plot. But once you get about 30 minutes in and things begin to unravel, you realize there is a lot more going on in this movie than just a guy looking for a job. In my interview with Matt, it was also really good to kind of hear his take on things, like themes of gender roles and fears and anxieties of falling apart because you can't keep finances going because you can't find a freaking job. It's a real fear. I've dealt with it. I think that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk with him because I just identified with the movie so much. Anyway, I hope you all enjoy the interview I had with Matt Patterson because I sure did. Welcome to the basement, everybody. Matt Patterson. That's me. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Killer intro. Welcome to the basement, my good man. Uh, I'm really happy thank to you have for you having on. Me, thank, thank, yeah, thanks for coming on. This is, uh, we're here to talk about a film you made recently. And I should have asked you this right before I hit record. So I might cut this part out, but did it come out? Because I'm seeing mixed things. Did it come out in 2019 or was it last year? No, no, it, it just came out this year, 2021. Uh, it, 2019 is when we had our first uh, festival screening. Correct. And unfortunately, we had a crew person that was very excited to log that as the world premiere because they let anybody put anything on IMDb. Oh, yeah. And they never, they never change anything. So we have petitioned and petitioned for them to say, hey, that was, it was actually a work in progress. We actually went back and reshot stuff uh added that entire first scene based on feedback and uh yeah they won't change the date so good luck figuring out when it was made all right <laughs> or when it came out <laughs> um so yeah because once i got the once i got the screener yeah it's a i was like 2019 but i was like this feels so contemporary and i'm sure you've gotten that on plenty of interviews there's just something about it that yeah very well we were super frustrated when we you know like everybody because you know covid locked everything down we were like ready to release and it's like okay hit the brakes for a year and then honestly like a lot of things in life it was like oh man maybe this is getting better with age like 
we didn't mean to make something that was going to fit with everybody understanding what it's like to be stuck at home, unless you like are looking for a job because that's how you do it. Now you type on computer, you don't go to door to door. So now we actually have way more people that understand what it's like to be kind of feel like you're going crazy stuck at home. So it actually worked out great. Yeah, I, that definitely hit a chord with me. I'll touch on that in a little bit. <laughs> personally i mean i i know i'm i'm telling you about we're talking about your film but i, I just i i kind of when i was in quarantine i made like a little short that was about a little cleaning robot i have at my house one of them d-bot things yeah um, yeah and i was just i always had this idea of putting these two ideas together of like a Wally Disney thing of like this robot that comes to life and sits and looks at the TV and watches it and being in quarantine, watching this screensaver on my television, I kind of connected the two and I had this robot like come to life and everything and watch TV. And a lot of people responded to it. Like, wow, this is miserable. I'm stuck inside. Or a lot of people thought it was funny. It was, I got like a lot of mixed things on that, but I think a lot of people went to work with their creative endeavors and a lot of people made stuff even before COVID that like yours is kind of hitting a stride and with a lot of people's anxieties during that time. So uh, it's apartment 413 and I believe it's streaming on Tubi right now. Yeah. It's on Amazon prime Tubi, uh coming on the Roku channel any day. Now it's supposed to be out on the uh, 27th, but we're waiting to hear there's over the course of the next month, it's going to be released across a bunch of places, dish TV, a bunch of other places like that. Nice. Nice. That's a big deal. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, we'll get into the film in a little bit. I just kind of, I want to get to know you a little bit personally and I want the audience to kind of hear what your story is. So let's just, I don't, it's a broad question, but let's just kind of go back to the beginning for you. You know, like what, what made you want to pick up a camera or what made you want to start writing screenplays or what, what made you want to make films basically? Yeah, those are big questions. So uh, middle school for me was like the height of the VHS camcorder, like big old honk thing that's stuck on your shoulder and they were stupid expensive. And uh, so of course we decided we wanted to make some, some videos and we made friends with this guy named Danny, whose dad owned a camcorder And we started making stupid videos and then our teachers found out about it. And we started asking if we could, I don't know, make a video instead of a presentation for school or in lieu of a paper. And uh, some of them started letting us do it. In fact, in Spanish, we did an entire episode of an original Star Trek, like the old 60s Star Trek in Spanish. We translated it and we shot it. It was horrible. We used a bowling ball wrapped in a t-shirt and a porta potty like thing is like the Saturn's rings, like hand holding a little uh, thing going past it. Uh, but it, it was great. And we were having fun. And then I was, by the time I was getting ready to go to college, I had fallen in love with theater and I was acting in, in plays and really started realizing, oh, wait, people like actually make these. I, I don't know what the disconnect was, but you go and you watch movies as a kid, you don't think anybody actually made it. Like there were people behind this. And so it just kind of clicked for me actually watching Clerks uh, by Kevin Smith when I realized, oh my gosh, like a dude made this. And that might've been one of my first independent film experiences, just uh, realizing like, oh, well, outside the studio, there's actually people that make movies. And so I decided I, I, I majored in my undergrad uh, degree in theater directing so that I could learn how to work with actors, break down scripts, 
uh, all the different acting methods. And then I went to film school afterwards, uh, and did film directing and sound design as my major and minor. Uh, and then I worked in LA doing commercials, music videos, films, lots of USC projects. They had a lot of money that they were paying other people to work on. So I, I'll take it. And, uh, and then, yeah, I got married, moved to Austin because we couldn't afford to live in California anymore and went from being a camera assistant to uh, doing my own stuff. And then I've now produced four feature films, two that I wrote. Uh, and then this is my first directing uh, feature that I've uh, directed by myself. And uh, it's been great. It's been a good journey, I think, outside of the LA world. In fact, my third feature, Bindle Stiffs, we sold to Kevin Smith and I got to tell him that his movie inspired me because I realized anybody can make a movie. Uh, and he did not take that the way I meant it. He was like, oh yeah, any, any asshole can make a movie. <laughs> I, I kind of envy you right here out of the gate. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> no, cause I, I, I don't mean to do this on the air, but like my story is I, I made a, a feature film after college on like $2,000 we raised. And it looks like a film made on $2,000 and it's about two kids working at a gas station. So it's very clerks esque. And I don't even, I don't even really know if I was that inspired by Kevin Smith at the time, but like in hindsight, yeah, I, I, you know, he was churning out like a lot of different films around that time, like 2000, like clerks two came out and whatnot. And Zach and Mary make a porno. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, uh, but like, I think I tweeted him one time, like the trailer and he liked it on Twitter. And so like, that's, that's the huge. closest I've ever gotten to Kevin Smith. Um, but anyway, so you live in Austin now and Austin's got a big like film vibe. I was, like I said, I was down there in February and I mean, I was only there for like three or four days. I got a, a writer friend down there. Uh, just talk to me about the Austin film scene. I know it's, it's kind of been very lively for quite some time now. Yeah, it ebbs and flows. When I, I moved here in 2004, and it was it was really huge then, uh, predominantly film. Uh, and we had really good state incentives, so it was drawing a lot of people here. And, you know, as you know now, like, nobody can compete with what Georgia has been doing and New Mexico, Louisiana. Uh, even Detroit got in the game. I don't know where they got the money from, but yeah. like, they were just throwing money at these productions. And Texas dropped our incentives and so a lot of our skilled crew left the films left uh but now we're kind of in this really cool space where a lot of tv shows are shooting here now uh and we have been for a while we had the leftovers uh we have fear the walking dead that shoots here right now we have walker texas ranger which just rebooted that's here um and so it's good i have some friends that had moved away to louisiana and then to georgia that have now moved back because they can work here again and so that's great. And then it works for me on the independent side because everybody has really upped their game and everybody really does like mix and match. Hey, I'm going to work on this, you know, studio thing for a while. And then and I, they make enough money or they want to make on something indie that they're willing to take a dive on price a little bit, but they bring their professionalism and excitement. And so I feel like it just kind of raises everybody's game, which is great. And we don't have permits here, so you can shoot anywhere you want. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I, so they um, don't give us the incentives, but they do let us shoot anywhere we want. I, I've just always got the vibe, like the at least in the past, like I don't, I don't know, maybe five or ten years, like Austin's just quite the place for indie film right now. And to hear things yeah. like that, yeah, that's pretty awesome. Well, I think it's also the 
you know, I started in LA where everybody's like, oh, we can't do it because, and there's always a list. Uh, we don't have the money. We don't have the equipment. Like we can't get the, per it's always just a, a reason why to not do it. And I think there's just this, there's this kind of vibe in Austin where he's like, yeah, let's do it. When you say you want to do something and people get excited and then you just do it. Yeah, no, that's a, that's, that's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so like just to backpedal a little bit, because you were mentioning picking up a camera in like middle school, which is I mean, something I did. I got a camcorder for my dad when I was, I think like in 10th grade. And I went and made a movie that was basically Halloween meets Silence of the Lambs. No. <laughs> <laughs> I edited it in my AV class, like the, the following year. It ended up being like two and a half hours long. So I don't, I don't know. Like, how were you as like a, like a kid, like creatively? Like I always, I, I always ask that of filmmakers, you know, what, you know, even if you weren't like trying to make movies as a kid, like what were like creative outlets? Cause I, you know, I wasn't trying to make movies as a kid either, but I, I drew and I wrote a lot. Like what was kind of your shit yeah. growing up? I love that question. I was, I, I feel like I was really creative. I, I also drew and wrote a lot. Um, I went to a magnet school in middle or elementary school. So I didn't live next to anybody I went to school with. And so there was nobody to play with after school. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time on my own, like making up stupid games, making up fantasy stuff, staring at myself in the mirror, doing stupid faces. Um, and it was probably middle school and even into high school where I kind of found my people that were weird like me that wanted to make stuff. And honestly, most of my best friends in high school were completely non-creative. I was the weird one. Uh, and that worked okay. I, I, di I didn't need the competition. <laughs> no, I can relate. Definitely. I was, yeah, yeah I was, I, a, I, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I just, I, I feel like creativity has always been not just an outlet, but something that I feel like if I don't do something creative, I start to get really frustrated. Yeah. No, I, I, I feel you. Yeah, I was, I, I started playing football when I was like 12 and I like, like football is the only sport I still watched. I don't really watch anything else. I'm not really a sports guy, but I still go to football, but I just got sick and tired of not being able to go home after school to do whatever. And yeah. I, I always needed a creative outlet. I always, I, I always did good in English class, but I never did good in math because I got to write. So now that, you know, obviously you're here, you're a filmmaker. I always want to know whether it's contemporary or stuff early on, like what, what just films, what filmmakers did you follow? What, what, what were you into from way back when to now, basically? Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, I, I got, I, I feel like I'm really lucky because I got to grow up in the eighties and early nineties. And so my movies were, I mean, I remember going and seeing the Indiana Jones movies, RoboCop, uh, all the Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. Like it was just a crazy time for action movies and over the top stuff. Um, Red Dawn and like everything was like very like afraid of communism. Like this whole like we can do it. Kids like taking over everything with the Goonies and Monster Squad. Movies. Yeah, yeah. But like there was this kind of um, definitely wasn't a renaissance of film. That would have been the 70s and pushing Grindhouse and, and stuff like that. But I think there was just like this freedom of just like, ah, it's weird. Let's make it. And so getting to watch stuff like escape from New York and things like that as a kid, I think really shaped me from all over the map of, I grew up loving Steve Martin, Martin short, all of those guys. And then also 
um, anything from uh, uh, any of the horror classics. Like I would sneak out and watch in the middle of the night, try and catch up and watch Freddy Krueger or Jason. And I got to grow up when those were contemporary and happening. And so we had to wait three years in between each movie and we weren't supposed to be watching them. So there's something enticing about it. Um, so I feel like that kind of all shaped me into like just really enjoying film and it being something that was, my dad would come home and just have a stack of VHS tapes and be like, all right, this is what we're doing this weekend. Mm. And so, so to me, there's just like a, such a, a, it's like a blanket for me to just be like, all right, this is, let's soak this up and have fun and eat pizza and, and bond. It's a reoccurring theme on this show. The, VHS or even early DVD era, the video store days. Yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, I, I sit back with my wife and we pop something on streaming, but there's just something about the process of, Hey, let's go to the video store. Yeah. And let's walk those aisles. And if you think of like, if you think about it, it's not the same process as sitting there and trying to pick something on streaming. And I know your film, no, there's streaming. a risk. I'm not knocking streaming, but there's a risk because you you didn't want to leave the store until you had picked the movie you wanted to watch because you weren't going to go back and swap it for another one that night. Yeah. Unlike streaming where you're just like, ah, I, I'm not digging it. Let's watch something else. Although for me, it's more, I, I get two hours between my kids, my wife, my dad lives with me, everything, work. I, I'm like, oh, I finally get two hours. I want to watch something. I spend two hours just looking yeah. because I want it to be good enough. Yeah, I think you're right. There's something missing from the, it's like shooting film versus digital. Like you wait for the right shot versus just taking a bunch of them. It, it's, there was, it almost, it's almost like you live that process more. You, you get up, you, you, you know, my process was we'd, we'd have a blockbuster. I mean, there was mom and pa shops too, but there was a blockbuster next to, um, I don't know if they have this chain down your way, but they were called stop and shop. And my mom would go off. And if I was old enough, I'd run in there by myself and I'd snatch up either a new release. And then I'd go down kind of the old action aisle. Yeah. I, I, I like, so I'm not, my, my, I have an older brother that grew up in the eighties. I kind of came of age with film probably in the late nineties, but he just to go back on what you were saying, like he introduced me. I don't even know if he like did it intentionally, but I watched all the Van Damme movies when I probably wasn't supposed to. I yeah. saw Bloodsport. Which is and... the best time to watch them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw Bloodsport. I saw Kickboxer, which honestly are the same goddamn movie, if you ask me. They are. They're the Except one, you dip your hands in glass. And the other one, it's, I think, the same thing. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen Bloodsport. I, I <laughs> The last time I even associated with that movie, I think I was at the gym like two years ago and the theme song from it came on and I was like, yeah, oh my gosh, Kumute. <laughs> yeah, Kumute. <laughs> I tried um, to watch it with my 14 year old and she's she's like, dad, this is so stupid. Yeah, Van Damme is who he is. You know, he's still around kicking butt. Yeah, I, I, I was introduced to all those. Like, I mean, my brother was probably into big into Van Damme and, you know, he showed me Schwarzenegger and. I feel like we talk about Commando multiple times on this show. I think I just talked about it with a guest last night for a later episode. <laughs> but um, yeah, like that was just a great era of 
genre films because I feel like, you know, yeah, you still had your lowbrow genre films, but you also had, you know, your blockbusters, you had your titans of the yeah. genre. Like, you know, you mentioned, you know, you watched your Jasons and your Freddies, but was there any like just really bad, trashy horror you ever watched? Oh, a hundred percent. Toolbox murders, uh, oh which God. if you're not familiar it's like a horrible late seventies, early eighties. Like it, I think he's a super of an apartment complex and he just kills pe- people with different tools from his toolbox <laughs> and uh, slumber party massacre. All of those, the, all of the ones that were like clearly just trying to be TNA movies. And they like said, no, we're a horror movie. Uh, that was very, very eighties. They had a producer on them that, you know, just, didn't make it in the adult film industry or something like that. Probably so. But I mean, yeah, I, I just remember the horror aisle again. I feel like I'm reoccurring themes here, but I, I think it's, I think it's fine. But I just remember daring myself to run down the horror aisle, the horror. I struggle to say it. I'm from the Northeast. It's <laughs> <laughs> like I'm saying horror, but um, I, I would run down that aisle and dare myself like, to just look at stuff. And there was just something about holding a VHS tape of that genre that just, and just to look at the back photos yeah, and it's just like, it was a dare for me. I mean, I didn't really start watching that genre full on until maybe I was a teenager, which I think most people do. And, you know, I was a teenager in the pre, you know, pre 2000, early two thousands, I should say. And, you know, but that was just, I don't know. I just love the video story days. I think what I'm getting at here. Yeah. My first experience with uh, Freddy, actually, honestly, the, my first real horror movie was Nightmare on Elm Street 1. And it was fifth, fourth or fifth grade. And I was spending the night at my buddy uh, Christian's house. And his parents, for some reason, let us watch this. I wasn't even allowed to stay up past like nine o'clock. And it's like midnight. We're, we're in sleeping bags in the living room watching on an old tube TV that's probably like 13 inches wide. Um, and I couldn't even look, I was so scared out of my mind. And then his older brother snuck up behind us in a Freddy Krueger costume. And he knew me cause I spent the night over there all the time. So he like ripped my sleeping bag out and like raised his like hand of claws, like these knives. And I bolted. And I remember I jumped in their dryer to try to get away from him. <laughs> sleepovers with scary movies is it's like it's just like almost part of adolescence coming of age i mean i remember this is like 2001 2002 we watched 13 ghosts the remake there oh yeah oh my god like it doesn't scare me now but at 13 i was losing my mind i think i i was watching on a sleepover at a a friend's house and his stepdad was an undertaker you you the, the, the he had a they worked at a funeral home and like there were dead bodies in the basement and what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it's like already elevates it like way above. And then like, just to, to bring it back to Kevin Smith, full circle, like just to kind of put me to sleep. I watched mall rats for like the second time at two in the morning, just so I could like, I'm not going to sleep like that. And <laughs> um nightmare on elm street though that's it's definitely a a staple of the genre i mean that that first one i mean i don't jump out and get scared anymore but i I, because i I didn't see it till i was older but i want to say 
I just think of like audiences in 1984 and just Wes Craven with what he pulled off in that movie. And just like it literally, there's parts of that movie that are straight up out of a nightmare. And they are. Well, and they tap into what I think a lot of great horror films and not just horror, but thriller, even dramas is it plays on something you can't control, which obviously you need sleep. And so we all have a fear of not being in control and what happens when we can't be in control. And so I think it just, I think that one just taps into that similar, like, you know, Jason is great. Have sex, you die. Like, okay, there's a moral there, but there's something about Freddie that, and like Candyman and things like that, where it's like, there's something you can't, well, Candyman just don't say his name, but uh, there's something like, yeah, crap. I shouldn't say I almost did it. Uh, there's something about it where it just innately, like you just can't not do it. And it taps into that fear. And that's something that stuck with me uh, all the way through. Like my favorite movie is the thing. Uh, John Carpenter is the thing classic. Uh, and well, I, maybe not my favorite movie, but my favorite like thriller horror genre movie, because it's just so smart and it's not really a horror movie. It's a whodunit. Like you're trying to figure this mystery out the whole time. I tell I tell everybody I, I feel like it's an Agatha Christie movie pretending to be a horror movie. That's a good way and, of putting it. Yeah. And I love that because it engages so many other parts of your brain that you feel like you're you're almost afraid you're too distracted, and that's when the monster's going to get you. Yeah. Um, which is what the characters are doing, and and that's what I love about that. It's crazy to think that was such a box office bomb. I know. And I guess the story was it came out the same week as E.T. or something, or it came out a week or two. Oh, is that what it was? I might be wrong, but I mean, they're the same year, but either it was, it came out before, no, it came out after E.T. And like the way the market was, like everybody's telling John Carpenter why it bombed. Like, well, you know, you just had this fun loving alien family film and nobody wants to see, you know, this kind of movie right now about aliens. Yeah. And it's just crazy how much of a cult class. I don't even want to call it a cult classic. Cause I feel like everybody loves that movie now once they see it. Yeah. It, it except for like maybe one effects moment. And even then I'd probably get shot for saying it all holds up. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've read the script. It might be the best written script I've ever read in my life. Uh, I haven't oddly enough. I, I, I scour the internet looking for downloadable scripts and uh, I still have not found that one. So I actually should look into that. I have it. I can send it to you. It's uh, I've never, it it really inspired me on how I write because it just uses very almost um, like Hemingway-esque writing, this very perfunctory, very, very, but it uses words as scene headings that, force you to run just barrel down the page it's really really excellent all right we'll uh we'll talk after the show about that yeah um all right i i we could go on and on like we might be up all night if we're just talking about this stuff but i want to i want to get to your film but i also wanted i have a question here i wanted to ask you because you briefly mentioned film school yeah. and there's the this is just a one-off question if you want to make it but uh, you know, there's always the go to film school, don't go to film school as a filmmaker. Like, you know, what do you, yeah. what's your take on something like that? 
Oh man, I get asked it a lot. I have friends who um, now have kids that are like getting to college age and they're like, Hey, can you talk to them? And my thing is don't, if you don't need to don't, uh, I needed to, I grew up in, in Texas. My dad was an aircraft mechanic. My mom is a, a teacher. So I was never, I didn't grow up around anybody that knew how to do this. I didn't have any family connections and I didn't, ha- I didn't have any access to people that were making films. And so when I got to California, I did the theater thing. And honestly, I feel like I took advantage of the school, not like in a, oh, I really took advantage of the opportunities. No, like I used and abused the school. They, I went to the LA film school. It was an accelerated program. They, once you got certified to use the equipment, you could check it out anytime you wanted. And I just started making so many films. Um, And I won a writing contest that Kodak did. And they gave me a few thousand feet of film plus processing uh, as a like winning thing. And I had to make a film that I won the writing contest for, but I, I did like a two to one ratio shoot. Like I knew exactly what I wanted and I used the rest of the film to do another short that I wanted to do. So I got to shoot on 35 for two shorts when I was in film school. Uh, so I, I took advantage of it. And if you have an opportunity to do that and not put yourself into crazy debt, yeah, go for it. I learned a ton. Uh, I learned how to, the technical side of things but I did not learn how to get a job. I did not learn how to make money <laughs> at yeah. all. No, that, I think that's, that's usual. That, that I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, I, I went to, <laughs> I went to community college film school and it was actually a really good program in Springfield, Massachusetts. That's great. STCC just thought I'd give them a plug. Uh, if that was a four-year school, I would have loved to stay there. But when it came time to leave, it was this like, do I go to Boston to Emerson if I even get in and mm. maybe put I know my parents had money, but like, I'm going to probably put them into debt with that. And I ended up pretty much staying in the area, but I dropped out because I started getting, because Hollywood was in Boston for, you know, they're kind of back now shooting there. Like HBO yeah. and Netflix is doing stuff there. And they were in town for a few years and I, I, got some gigs on sets, worked on a couple lifetime movies. And I learned more on set than I did in film school. But then again, like I still learned a lot. It's just, I think with the film versus digital debate, not that it's really a debate, but I think that always parallels with the film school or no film school thing. So, I mean, I I definitely say if, if you can, you know, hustle, yeah, don't go to film school. Don't put yourself in debt yeah. or go to a small school. I don't know, but it's the same thing. I say like my daughter is really into uh, computer science programming. And I know a lot of people that did not go to school. They taught themselves and they make a couple hundred grand a year. And I don't know anybody that works in these companies that's looking at your diploma. Nobody at a film cares where you went to school. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've never been asked like, you know, what was your GPA? <laughs> I worked in I worked in network television. I worked for slight plug here. I worked for NBC for a little while, and you know nobody ever asked what my GPA was. So, anyway, that's cool. I just wanted to ask you that. And no, it's a great question. Some good tidbits, but um, I want to go jump into apartment four thirteen right now. Let's do it. I I checked it out. I got the screener, and I I I I went in completely blind. I found out after the fact that it's streaming in a couple places, but I checked it out on the screener. 
And I'm not even just saying this because you're on the show. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I really oh, had thanks, a lot man. of fun. It was a nice little, like primarily one location film. Just like how I asked you at the top of the show, but I'll, second half of the show here. What's what was how did this all how did this come together? Like what was the starting point for this thing? Yeah, uh, let me let me give a brief uh, explanation for anybody that isn't familiar. Oh yet. yeah, the synopsis. Um, yeah, so it's it's a it is a very contained film. It takes place mostly in one apartment. Marco is out of work, looking for work before his pregnant girlfriend is going to have their first baby, and uh, he's got to find a job before the baby comes. And the pressure of finding work every day from home online, and he starts finding these weird post-it notes around his phone starts calling and weird stuff starts happening. And, and he starts to lose his grip on reality. And we, as the audience start to, to be not only concerned for him, but also Dana, his, his girlfriend. Uh, and it's really just uh, a nice little piece. I think of trying to figure out what's going on with Marco. Um, yeah. So the idea for this came, uh, Actually, so I didn't even have the idea. I had a couple projects that fell apart. Uh, as you as you know, like you've got to try to make five movies to have them all fail and another one you weren't planning on happens uh, to work. And so the it's the spinning plates thing. I had a couple projects that were in the works that, were, that fell apart. One that I was packaging with UTA. I was very excited. This is going to be my like, big deal. It was going to happen. Totally, totally biffed. Had a little money sitting there waiting for it to do it. And I was like, maybe I'm the problem. Like I had just finished like 30 rewrites for a project that I didn't even know which way was up by the end because I was getting these notes uh, that I didn't agree with and I thought I had to do it. So I went on inktip.com. Are you familiar with the website? Yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah. So uh, inktip is like a, it's like blacklist light. It, people can upload their, their scripts and they're guaranteed to be fresh. They're only three months old max, and then they disappear. And you have to be vetted as a producer to get access. So I found a script on there. I downloaded 20 scripts, love this one. And it was great, contained two main actors, one main location could be done for the money we had already set aside for this, one of these other projects that failed. And, uh, and I sent it to my friend, Bria Grant, who ends up playing Dana. And I was like, am I crazy? Is this good or not? And she called me and she's like, I really like it. I think I hear some notes. And if you make it, you, I kill you if you don't cast me. Like, I really want to be in it. So uh, that kind of started it. And I teamed up with Ron, who's a writer. We did a couple of rewrites and then, yeah, made a movie. Which makes wow. it sound a lot easier than it is. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel you. Uh, um, so you just touched on the cast a little bit. Like what was, I mean, it's a very small cast, but like how did yeah. you kind of assemble this team? So I met Bria Grant. Uh, she's fantastic. She's been directing a ton lately. She's um, great in it, yeah. Yeah, she is just phenomenal. So she is, she's moved from acting now into primarily directing and writing. She's been winning a ton of awards. She just finished uh, directing a Blumhouse movie in Louisiana, which is super cool. Wow. Um, yeah, she's awesome. So I met her in 2010. I had a film that I had written and produced uh, called An Ordinary Family that we were premiering at the LA Film Festival in competition and met her there, just kept in contact. And so that's how I, I knew as soon as I read the script that I was going to want her to be in it um, if she said it was good enough. And then uh, the hard one was Marco, the main character, because 
as you know, from seeing it, he's literally in every scene. Like if this guy can't act and isn't likable enough to want to keep watching, there was no reason to make the movie. And luckily enough, I, he, he was in Austin. We were shooting in Austin. I hired him and then he moved to LA. So I had to fly him back and put him up. So there went some of my spare budget. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Nicholas Sines is who I ended up casting for that. And he is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Dave Buckman helps run uh, Cold Town Theater, which is an improv troupe here in town in Austin. And he uh, was awesome enough to come in for a few days to play the mechanic and then uh, rounded a bunch of stuff out. The, the, there's a woman in there that plays a doctor. She's my actual doctor in real life. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. I was asking if I could use her office to shoot in because it's really contemporary, clean. And, uh, and then I was like, wait, I need somebody to say doctory stuff. Do you want to just do it? And so we just like ad-libbed that whole scene with her. I was like, what would you say? <laughs> uh, talk to me about the, I mean, the film is, I want to say 98% in one location, probably besides yep. that doctor office scene. I think at the very end, um, there's like a cubicle scene in an office. Yep, that's it. Question for you. Are you in the very end of the movie? Like, are you in, do you, you're not in it? No. Oh, because no. I well, when I was doing research for the show and I was just looking up little pointers about you in the movie, like there's a scene where the, the main character, he I don't know, he makes some sort of sound and there's a guy behind him. There's an extra or something that like yeah. hears him and it kind of looked like you. So when you popped up here, I was just like, maybe he was in the movie. I don't know. But I guess I'm no, wrong. that's a it's a buddy of mine. Brooks Birdsall. He, he was actually on the crew. Oh, and okay. <laughs> we just needed somebody to sit back there. I was like. Ah, he does a great, like, what the heck's wrong with you look? So let's throw him back there. <laughs> All right. I thought it was like a Hitchcock moment for you or something with a cameo. No, now but... I wish I had done it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, it's primarily in one location. Like I was saying, like, I was just kind of, I was doing some reviews online of the, or seeing some reviews online of the film and whatnot. And people were talking about it being one location and how important you have to make the location as it's like a character in the movie. Yeah. Uh, did you maybe try to go in that direction with this apartment? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like you said, like it, it, to me, it was just as important as Marco uh, finding Nick to be able to play that character because uh, the apartment's in every scene. And so uh, first of all, we had to find a place we could use. And I think John Michael and I, my producer, John Michael Simpson, we went to probably a hundred different apartment complexes between the two of us just trying to find somebody that would let us shoot there because we didn't have the budget to do a studio and we got lucky enough to find one in north central austin that was in the middle of remodels and they had a section of apartments that were due to be remodeled but weren't remodeled yet so they were going to be empty for a month and so they let us actually take over two apartments one next door to the other so that we could stage our equipment, use that as a crew holding bathrooms, makeup, all that stuff, and then keep the other set a hot set. And that became everybody's home for the, the shoot period. And uh, I, I don't think that we could have made it anywhere else now, just because it is such a tiny claustrophobic place, but there were enough little places we could hide everybody because every effect we did, it was practical. And so, when we have a bunch of red rags everywhere that the camera turns away and turns back and now they're all black, 
we had like 12 people hiding all over behind furniture in the hallway. And we just would practice and we'd turn the camera, count to two, turn back, and they would have to all be switched and in the exact same spots. And, uh, and that was fun. The crew really enjoyed that. I think those type of things really kept the crew uh, having a blast. So we, there's also an earthquake scene where we've got literally everybody in the crew on the ground with, sh- with a fishing line attached to different things that are making a fall and moving the furniture. Um, it's just having fun with the kind of practical movie magic on a shoestring budget in a tiny apartment really helped bring those walls to close in and help make it a character in its own. Yeah, it it's crazy that you say that there was all that crew in there because that 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 apartment just feels so just dull and like it looks like the I mean it's it's a it's a great location I mean I'm not I'm not knocking it but I think you know I think that's the vibe you're kind of going for it it almost looks like a a place you know a guy moves into after he's you know he's going through a divorce or something I, I don't know yeah well we wanted them to be care like he he's he's in between work and doesn't have very much money and they probably move to a new apartment every 12 months. And so he probably doesn't have a lot. And so it was really important to have it be just the bare minimum of what you would need to, to, you know, survive. Yeah, no, it's, so I just kind of want to get in your head with the overall, like the direction the film goes, it's, it, it feels a little bit like a, I, I almost, I don't want to say this, but I'm going to say it. It feels a little bit shining esque mm-hmm. with, I'm sure you've heard that before. Yeah. I, I don't know how it just kind of, you know, he starts, he's, a, I don't know if he's imagining or not, if he's writing all these bad things on his resume and whatnot. And I guess where I'm getting at is like, you know, what was your process in trying to create the madness that he's going through appear on screen? Yeah, it, it, it's tough because like you said, we're in a limited location. So changing up the shots was really important. Uh, one of the things we had a bunch of rules that I set up early with Rocky Conley, my DP. And anytime he is in a good headspace, we're on sticks. Okay, interesting. And anytime he starts to go into more of a psychotic episode or things might not be real, we're handheld. And it's not something that you're going to notice as a viewer, hopefully, uh, but it creates a different visceral reaction to how you're viewing and experiencing the motion of, of what you're seeing. And we also tried our hardest to not use the same angle more than twice, uh, which was a challenge in itself because there's not a lot of places to move the camera to. But I worked with uh, David Atkins, my gaffer, on trying to rig almost like a studio TV lighting to where we could have lights hidden spanners across the ceiling wherever we could so that we could move from room to room. And then uh, I tried to do whenever there's a heightened moment for Marco to try to do it in one take instead of cutting. So there's actually like seven or eight oneers in there that my my favorite is he's he's has his resume being looked at by his girlfriend and she realizes that he's been saying I'm gonna kill everybody at the company if you hire me, which is not what you want to put on your resume. 
And we were able to track around the room this entire time while they're having this conversation. He goes into another room and changes, comes out, grabs a knife because he's going to go and he thinks the, the landlord is messing with him and changing stuff. And all of that was done in one take. Um, and I think we probably did like 15 takes to get the timing right. Uh, but my, my amazing actors nailed it every time. It was completely camera work that was the hard part. Uh, but I, I feel like that was my headspace. I'm trying to, trying to let my actors act, have their moment, and not rely on editing to keep the tension, but let them be really good actors. I think, I don't know if this is the same scene you're talking about, but I think one of the best holy shit moments is when I think he's arguing with the landlord. It's with the mechanic when he shows the up. The mechanic, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. They're having an argument and he, I think he go. I'm forgetting the process, but he goes in and then it's his girlfriend in there who he like. Yeah, he slashes him with a knife. He slashes him with a knife. He's like, get out of here. He runs into the other room and he gets in there. And now his girlfriend's on the ground bleeding. That And then like she runs up to the door. He shuts it. And then the pest guy, I, I don't want to give too much away for anybody who hasn't <laughs> seen it, but there's just, that was like, a, oh fuck. That is a, that was a cool, I'm just kind of commending you here, but that was oh, a cool you. like moment of just, and I think that that was a one or two or at least. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was all, that was all one. That yeah, was, that that was that's my favorite um, trick shot. Yeah, I think that's going to be a lot of people's favorite trick shot. Uh, and, and because it also, it, to me, it coincides in the moment of the script where we go from uh, one of the things I like about it, and and maybe it doesn't work with a lot of contemporary viewers right now, but it, it's kind of a slow burn movie up until the final act, and then it just barrels down. Um, and I like that. I, I feel like we get a lot of opportunity to meet the characters find them, ask her questions. And then that to me was the moment where everything hits the fan. Yeah, definitely. That That's for, for a movie that's it's like an hour and 20 minutes in runtime. It, yeah, it, it felt very full and you know, I, I, it definitely takes its time to get to know the characters. I mean, I, I think why it struck a chord with me on a personal level is not maybe, I know we were talking about the comparison with COVID lockdown and whatnot, but honestly, like two years ago, I I was kind of, I wasn't Marco, but I was like, I I, I just, (laughs) I was kind of in between like, you know, having a big boy job and now I'm kind of back out in the world trying to get something new, uh, working a couple odd jobs. I wasn't out of a job, but I need to find something better. And it's just like, I just honestly had this weird paranoia that like the world's just playing tricks on me. Like I couldn't get anything going. And I felt like that just theme or whatever, that just insanity where you don't know what's real and what's not was captured really well on film. Oh, thanks. Yeah. There's so many themes that I loved about the script when I first read it and that loved working with Ron because he, he let me add some more that, I think a great relationship, creative relationship is when you see things, the other one maybe subconsciously put in there, but wasn't aware of, and you just connect a couple dots and then bring that out. And that happens again when you bring actors on set. And one of those, like Ron went in this with this, he was trying to really capture something that was about like this, what does it mean to be a man and provide for your family? And what does it do to you when you can't and you've got like your, you know, even if you haven't had kids, uh, there's this fear that you're never going to find a job or you're never going to be fulfilled in the way that you were meant to be. 
uh, that you're made to be and how much of that is put on us by how we're raised. And for Marco, like he is like, he, he ends up getting offered a job. Dana finds him one, but he doesn't want to do it because it's beneath him. Yeah. And sorry, like I've been there. I'm sure you have where it's like, I hear you, but I don't want to be that person. And you're holding on so tight to who you want to be that you start to feel crazy. Like, am I wasting everybody's time, including myself? Like, am I living a fantasy or, or worse? Like a completely, do I have a completely other worldview of myself than is real? Yeah. And do I need to just give up and stop trying? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with you. And I mean, I think we're in a time also where a lot of roles of genders are being kind of questioned, like what the woman does in the household, what the yeah. man does in the household. And men, I think we have this thing, you know, beaten into us from generations beyond us, maybe that, you know, we go out and we make the money and we, we don't really get to, we see our family a couple hours a night and that's it. And we got to go back to work. And so when yeah. we're kind of stripped of that, we're just off kilter and don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah. And it's really, it, it creates a really vicious cycle. And I think not to leave, you know, the ladies out, I think that there's also that of the, I think it goes both ways. Everybody has this fear of not, yeah, not being every, especially if you're in a relationship, not like pulling your weight and being judged for it. Like found, I mean, found, found less than from a personal experience. It's a long story, but you know, I, I left working in network television cause I kind of, and I was going to take any odd job I got. And I pretty much, that's when I started just banging away at screenplays nonstop and whatnot. And, um, but I just remember having this moment for a while. And it's probably why I connected with your film of just like, am I making the right choice? Like, am I making yeah. the right, like, I'm not in California. I'm not in New York city right now. Like I'm, am I making the right choice by doing this? And, you know, here I still am, but um, <laughs> it, it's definitely a question that's poised in your film and a question that's asked in your film. And I, I think you did a really good job at it. So. Oh, thank you. I, you know, I don't want to give anything away. The decisions that Mark ultimately makes, I wrestle with uh, still. Um. And part of that was I wanted to, I, I don't understand how we as humans can lie to ourselves or deceive ourselves. It seems like it's something that shouldn't be possible, uh, but we're capable of it and we can settle and choose things that aren't healthy um, because we want to be happy. Yeah. And um, man, I, more power to you just pushing and And I, <laughs> I feel very kindred. Like it is, it is a constant um, pushing that, Sisyphus or whatever, pushing that rock up the hill every day. Um, but I also have to remind myself, and I'll say this to you and everybody else, who is deciding what your definition of success is? True, true that. I don't even know how to transition off that. That was pretty deep. <laughs> <laughs> and mic drop. And all right, good night. Um, I guess we could probably end on that now. Wow. Um, so it's uh, apartment 413. It is available on, uh, I've already forgot. It's available on Tubi, Amazon Prime. You said on Roku and potentially a few other places very shortly. Yeah, uh, you can, uh, you know, you know how to use Google. Search for it, find it. Yeah, it's not that hard. 
Uh, let me just ask uh, whatever you can or can't talk about. Uh, what's next for you coming down the pipeline? Um, yeah, I've got a, a film, actually one that I was working at with the, the agency that is in works for production. So I'm hoping that that's going to happen. And then I've also got a uh, werewolf slash chupacabra on the border with Mexican immigrants and vigilante Minutemen. Uh Incredible. script that I that I wrote uh, a few years ago that is looking like it's finally getting some steam and I'm very excited about it. Awesome. Awesome. And you know, just uh, you can send me the links afterwards, but uh, where can we stalk you on the internet or track you down? Oh man, I'm easy. I'm at at matter pro M A T T E R pro uh, pretty much everywhere. And then uh, you can check out apartment 413 on Instagram. It's uh, apartment 413 one because apparently somebody else already had the uh, original apartment 413 and they were doing some nasty things because it got banned so we're not that one sons of bitches <laughs> all right matt well uh thank you for giving me a good show this was awesome thanks Tyler. yeah uh so if you guys uh just you guys know the routine uh subscribe to the podcast tyler geist's basement at tyler geist's basement pod on the internet also be a facebook page coming up real soon i just kind of slacked off of doing that because i like instagram better uh but on the apple podcast spotify just leave a comment leave a review leave a five-star rating or leave a one-star rating i don't really care but (laughs) you guys uh we'll, we'll talk to you guys next week thank you very much